Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Beyond the Album Cover with Jarrell Mason, where we get inside the entertainment industry mm-hmm. with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. So with me right now, I have a legend. If you grew up watching this iconic show on Saturday mornings, you know my guest all too well by his signature Fox Tales. Yes, Mr. Derek Fleming, or as I like to call him, Uncle D. Derek, welcome to Beyond the Album Cover, sir. Well, thank you, man. Good to see you, Jarrell. I love you, nephew. Yes, sir. So how have you been holding up uh, since COVID? Well, man, pretty well. You know, I worked the whole time. It's pretty, you know, I got the shots. Had COVID back in November. So, um, yeah, I've just been kicking it, man. Learned to play the bass. And, um, yeah, just faring well, my wife and I. Yeah, same here, wife and I not trying to drive each other crazy because we're both working from home and me doing Beyond the Album Cover on the side. So a good thing that's come out of COVID for me is just having more time to really ramp up the podcast and to get more guests on. Right, that's awesome. I'm really proud of you, man. I've seen some of your podcasts. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. And it's a pleasure to have you on. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So what was life like for you prior to getting on the big train? Did you do any dancing in and around the local clubs? Or were you on any of like the regional variations of Soul Train, depending on your locale? Well, you know, I'm in Southern California, so there's a lot going on. So I grew up here in Orange County, which is where Shabadoo grew up. Um, if you know Casper and Cooley, they've been in a lot of Michael Jackson um, videos. Matter of fact, Casper is uh, credited with being one of the people that taught Michael Jackson how to do the moonwalk, which I know is true because Michael Jackson came to his home and that was all in the paper. And you know, there's a lot of, you can track it with uh, receipts. <laughs> and then, um, so I came from a place where there are many dancers. And what I've come to discover is that the reason there was such good dancing where I was from is that there was a military base. So during the summers, all the kids would go back to wherever they're from. Let's say they're from New York, Chicago, Florida, and Texas, and they come back to school right after the summers and they would have parties. And that's where we learn all these dances from all over the United States. So in the small area that I'm from, and so many people from so many places come to this Orange County. That's where I think they had a lot of phenomenal dancers and that's who I would be I wouldn't say so much competing, like you're trying to be number one, but where you would go to show your gift. So they would have town shows, they would have, you know, the colleges would give just dances and uh, dance offs is what they called them at that time as well. So I I did a lot of those things as a little kid and um, I I enjoyed myself. I got um, notary from just, I don't know, I guess dancing like a grown person, you know, a little kid, you can kind of tell, but I just had this gift of, being able to dance like a, a grown person. Mm-hmm. So were you taking bits and pieces of the different elements like you're stated from different dances across the country and adding your own flavor or were you strictly modeling your dance style after what you saw in LA? So it's kind of organic. I didn't think I had a plan like I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that. It was just that, um, you know, I like I said, we go to these college dances, man, you just see people getting off. And of course you're going to still especially when the girls are screaming or somebody's screaming, you're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna use that on my next, and my turn comes up. So I had a lot of my tricks up my sleeve and I would usually go last in whatever the dance contest would be. And um, I guess I stole a lot and that's what you do. And I guess over time it evolves and then you get your own style. I think it just becomes of a, um, especially what's going on in the world, just like anything else, trends come through 
And then, you know, you're always looking as when you're young, you know, you have these imagination and visions of, oh, I'd like to do this and I'd like to do that. Of course, there's Michael Jackson, there's James Brown, there was David Bowie. I mean, I could name so many artists, you know, that were you'd see on TV. And of course, like now, there are no black people on TV. I, you know, I'm from the age where you'd be like, hey, mama, there's a black person on TV. It'd be like Sammy Davis Jr. or Ella Fitzgerald or, you know, someone in that time frame. Um, so a lot of the dance styles you did get from television. There was a show called um, um, Hallabaloo and TV A Go Go. And there was uh, not just uh, American Bandstand and Soul Train. Like you said, you know, in this area, there was a real Don Steele show. So a lot of the kids from this area, they dance on those shows because they were filmed here in Los Angeles. So not only that this area, just in Orange County, but then being so close to Los Angeles, yes, I would definitely have stolen something from that time period. And it would have been from whomever and wherever and however, just that I would have something that would make me stand out. Mm -hmm. And the real Don Steele, for those of you that don't know, one of the boss jocks that was on 93KJ, powerhouse, mm -hmm. top 40 AM station out in California. Mm -hmm. You can also check mm -hmm. out my interview with Shadow Stevens, who also was on KJ wow. for a brief moment. So as far as the clubs in and around LA, what were the main differences from, let's say, a club such as the Snooty Fox or uh, any of the old haunts that a lot of the different dancers in and around LA would frequent? Well, you know, again, Orange County and LA are in close in proximity, however, very different. Um, Orange County has more of a white population. So the people here were not to say that LA is not affluent, but there are a lot, a lot of the clubs here would have a, like a newer, um, design to them. Mm -hmm. LA would, like you said, would have like places that were like, had been there for years, like old theaters. One was, uh, in, uh, for instance, was called the Palace or the Palladium. And those those places are kind of well known. You've probably heard of those two places. And then there was a place we all go to called Paradise 24. And there was Mavericks Flats. I mean, I can go on and on and on about the names of them. But some of these places like Danceteria, some of them just be a pop-up in those times, you're not knowing it's a pop-up. It ain't gonna last that long, you know, be like for a summer. But man, there was so many jam, you know, real good jams that we go to in Los Angeles. Here in Orange County, we had a club called the Crescendo. And I know I've seen the likes of Prince before Prince was famous, that's where he had come. I've seen Giorgio there, I'm just off the top of my head, naming who, um, Patti LaBelle, um, and with LaBelle. Uh, Man, I mean, almost every David Bowie came there. The crescendo was like world known here in Orange County. And then um, a lot of the dancers like Shabadoo would win dance concerts, dance contests there, you know? I'm trying to think of who else. Um, I, you know, oh, and Disneyland was in proximity. So a lot of those dancers that would come from television would also come to Orange County to dance at these clubs is what I'm getting at. Except that, like I said, so many of the kids in the military base lived here and grew up here in the high schools that when they went to college, they had come back and forth from the East Coast. So a lot of the clubs here were like filled with those people. And it was not uncommon to see like the Soul Train dancers at Disneyland dancing at what was called Tomorrowland where the fantasy stage comes out of the ground. And man, it'd be cool in the gang on that stage at that time. It might be um, Natalie Cole. It'd have to be something high up on the charts of that was like a crossover. 
Now the Jacksons were too big to come to, to like Disneyland, but you know that next echelon right up under that, like Sister Sledge, those type of groups would come there, man. And it'd be just like, like you're at a club. So uh, I'm trying to see on the one thing, we have this underground club called um, Alias Smith and Jones was a place a lot of black people here in Orange County went to. And then there were the clubs that were at the beach was called like um, NYC, which is New York Beach Club. There was um, the BBC Club, which is uh, patterned after, um, uh, God, what is his name? Um, in Europe, and this, I can't think of his name right now, a white guy, he's on television. I think you know him if you said his name. Um, he was a D, like a VJ, but he had a club here in Orange County. I mean, I could go on and on and there's so many clubs and I'm sorry, I can't just, um, like they're not so famous where you would go, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. But man, just the history of the club scene here was very um, eclectic. There was some of everybody, there were like Persians there. There were um, a lot of Vietnamese because of where we are in Orange County. And so not only were there just black people, there were people from all over the world that live here in Orange County that were pretty good dancers themselves because a lot of their um, relatives were in the military and taught them in those countries. Wow, so it was a real form of a cultural exchange with all of the different cultures and different styles meeting at the center point. Yes. And like I said, like Shabadoo, for instance, I use him because you, he's like the most famous person from Soul Train, in my opinion, that you just readily know. Then there was, a, like I said, Casper and Cooley. Are you familiar with, um, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, he was in some of Janet Jackson's videos, Wayne Ward and Crescendo Diamond. Have okay. you heard those names? Name, so name, in like a, Yeah, they were in Paula Abdul's videos. They're from Orange County. Um, there were some female dancers from here as well. A lot of them, they danced on Soul Train, especially in the 80s. Uh, Chuck Johnson, his wife, Carolyn, is from Orange County. She danced on Soul Train. There's Deborah Winters. There's Christine Sanchez. A lot of these uh, pretty women that dance on Soul Train are from here and from the club scene as well. Now, were there particular clubs that Eric, Eric, who I'm referring to people as Eric Kasim, who was the dance coordinator on Soul Train, that he or some of the other folks were frequent, the scout out dancers, and the, where the, what's the process to get on easier if they already saw you in action at the clubs or you knew somebody that already danced on the show and they got you in? Good question. So, you know, there's a particular time frame when you ask that question because the time frame was, you know, there's the 70s, there's the 80s, there's the 90s. So when Eric came, it was like the mid 80s. So there was a process where he was going to frequent clubs, you know, and like I said, he would probably go to Florentine Gardens, which had a, a high Hispanic or Latino um, clientele. That's where Rosie Perez would go there and party. There's some other people to dance on Soul Train. That I, you know, that's rumor. I didn't go to those clubs at that time. He probably would go to Paradise 24. Let's see, there was um, Moody's by the Sea was a club. He probably went to the Highway Man. Um, the Century Club was another place where a lot of the Soul Train dancers would go and he probably found dancers. Then, like I said, a lot of pop-up places. I'm sure it was so many places that Eric had uh, the uh, opportunity to, to visit and get people. So I'm sure there's places I'm not even able to even name, man. But um, yeah, the, the process was um, when I, that I've heard, I'll go through the timeline. So in the seventies, it was um, early on, it was Pam Brown, who was the floor director. And Don Cornelius picked her to be the person that would go to these parks. There was park and recreation. So, in, you know, in the urban area here, a lot of the kids would go to the parks to be outside instead of they didn't have 
their own backyards. So there's park and recreation. Well, Pam would go to those places where those kids would gather and get those kids to come to Soul Train. That was that first process. The next process I've heard that it was, who do you know? Who do you know that dance well? Your cousin, somebody, and they dress nice, bring them. The next process was that, hey, we want to see how you can dance. Now we have a Soul Train school. So now I'm talking about 75, 76, 77. So by that time, they had a Soul Train dance school. So you kind of went through there or you showed up on the set and they kind of watched you move or dance and that decided your fate. Although there was still a line outside where dancers knew, here's the day that we're gonna dance, Saturday is Sunday, you're in this line and someone's gonna come there and choose you out of that line to go inside. By the time I got there, it was 1980, but the process was you're outside the gate, there's a guy named George, he used to have a quarter in his ear and they would pick people who they wanted to come in. So you get inside one area, it was KTTV, was this particular studio that we were at. It was almost like they corral you. So they get you in this first area and that's where you pass the person going out saying, you look good, you look good, because they hadn't even seen you dance yet. Then they get you in this, this corralled area. Then when you're in that area, they might come and say, let me see you dance, but they choose even in that corralled area, particular people that already have been on television so they say, you come on in, Bobcat, you come on in. Uh, let's see who was pretty famous. Cheryl Song, come on in. You know, depending on who you were and how poppy you were. And then it would come down to echelon. And then they just pick good looking couples or individuals. So I got on there by that, that situation right there, being outside, getting in the crowd, then getting in. And man, when I got in, I'll, I'll start next and let you ask another question. Now, once you got in, was it almost kind of like, even though you got into the studio and on the set, you were still in a way auditioning where if they notice up in the booth, like this person's moving too stiff, they'll give you the hook and whisk you out of the studio. So I'll make it a little easier. Let's say you were at a high school dance, you know, so it isn't so blown up. You're at a high school dance and there's a production going on. There's a stage, there's lights, there's some the bleachers where you're gonna sit. So all you're doing is walking into this set and it's simple as that, except the big blown up picture, there's a soul train sign, there's a crystal ball, there's all this other stuff, the cameras and you know things you never even see, scaffolding. So it's an actual set. When you get there, all you're doing is going sit on the bleachers and waiting for somebody to say something. And it's kind of dark. It's not lit like when you first get in there, like it looks on television. It's dark and it's very cold. Reason it's so cold, because when those lights come on, they're so bright, Jarrell, that we would get tans on, on the stage. And most of us are sweated out our clothes, but on TV, it, we look, you know how crisp it looks. Man, a lot of us, we are sweating like, I don't know how they do that magic, but you rarely can tell that somebody is sweating. Um, then um, what they do is they'll, they'll tell the, the dance, the floor director, which is Erica Seen, been a Pam Brown, it's been a Chuck Johnson. Those three people at different intervals of Soul Train have been responsible. So I'll go down the, the timeline. First was Pam Brown, then it was Chuck Johnson, then it was Erica Seam. Well, before Erica Seam, there was a guy named Daryl Mitchell that did it right before Erica Seam, then there was Erica Seam. And um, uh, the question was um, the process when you get in. So then those people were responsible for telling you when and where to go on the stage, unless Don Cornelius himself picked you out and that wasn't uncommon, that could happen. So let's say it's Pam. She would just go to the person and say, okay, I want you to go to this right stage, go to the left. If you're chewing gum, give me your gum. She'd have a cup to always put your gum in. That was her job, catching people with gum. 
And then you would just go to these particular spots on the stage. And then you wouldn't particularly get to always dance with your partner that you brought or came with. They might just stick you with a girl. If you both are wearing red, they see another girl they think you look better with or for whatever reason, they'll just stick you with this other person. Oh man, and it looks all glamorous, all glitzy on TV. Now I know those tapings were grueling and long, especially somebody flubbed and said, uh, we need to do a redo. So you could be there from X time to X time and sweated out your outfit, probably danced to the same song 10 plus times. And did you know prior to the music coming on what song was being played or was it at random and you just had to figure it out as the song was being played for your routine? So there's someone uh, that is responsible for the music that's gonna be played or knows what's gonna be played. And I don't know what the particular person's name is, but let's say it's his, uh, his name was, um, Wow, can't think of Tiny, I'll call him right now. I can't think of this. I know that's a nickname he had, but Tiny would have this the sheet that would say the order of the groups that are coming on and what songs that would be played in a particular part of the show. And he used to have it wound, you know, tightened up, just holding it like a baton, you know, walking around with it. But I never wanted to know what songs were coming up because then, in my opinion, I wanted everything I did was so freestyle. And not that I didn't want to, but I wasn't particularly like trying to figure out what songs are gonna play next. Most of us didn't really care because most of it was gonna be songs that, that we wouldn't even probably know because they were just coming out before they even hit the radio. There are many songs like that. But if you knew who the artist was, you'd just get excited. So some people would know what artists were coming on. And so knowing what artists were coming on, you know what hit record they probably have on the radio concurrently. So that would kind of give you a, a, a forethought of saying, oh, this person's coming on. Let's say it's somebody like Patti LaBelle or Barry White and they're such a hit maker that even if they didn't have a hit song, they're probably going to bring one of their dance hits if they're doing a, like a, 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 a tribute to that person. So you kind of always had kind of clues of what was going to be coming up, except for like when the white group started coming up like the late 80s, 85, 86, I think, Duran Duran and those people come up, they would just show up, man, and we'd just be soul trained dancers doing whatever we do. Man, yeah. And most definitely agreed. And I didn't know this until VH1 did the documentary about Soul Train, the hippest trip in America, that the scramble board was kind of already predetermined in a way where they knew who was being selected and what was the person that was being unscrambled. Because I guess Mr. Cornelius' intention was we want our dancers to know who we're paying homage to and not be seen as not knowing our history because to give you some context people prior to soul train that the shows for african americans that showed us in a positive image was few and far between and i believe the pbs show soul it was probably off the air by that point so mr cornelius had a vision had a plan and he executed it to the t you know, when when you're creating something, I don't think so much that you're sitting there and you have an actual, like, this is my plan. I think you get a good idea and you act on the good idea and then it, it builds on, on that. So when it comes to Scramble Board, I think it was a good idea and it was a way, but I think also what it did is it, was in co it coincided with what Johnson and Jet, well, the Johnson products were putting out, Jet and Ebony Magazine, so it only made sense that they have like the centerfold and jet, like here's a beautiful woman. 
or all the things that they were doing, Ebony, how they did tributes to people. So I think Don kind of aligned, almost made the show like almost like a living magazine because now we have so much technology, it's hard to look at it in a small fragment way of what television was like. So at that time, it wasn't like futuristic. It was just like, this is the formula. We're gonna follow this formula because it works every time. So if you take like a Soul Train segment, you put up to American Bandstand segment, they almost go part hand to hand. Here's the opening, here's two songs, here's a guest, here's a commercial, here's an opening, here's another song, you know, and it, it's a formula. So my point being that I think when, the, when that scramble board came up, I don't think Don was sitting there going, yeah, this is exactly what I'm gonna do. That's how it's written now. And it sounds beautiful and it is, it, there's some truth to it, but I think it was more organic. I think he just thought, hey, here's a way for us to have something else added to the show and putting out good information. And, but again, I'm saying it's not, I don't think it was so much like, oh yeah, this is gonna teach America about black people. I don't think it was that serious at that time in my opinion. Mm -hmm. But it turned out to be beautiful. It's a beautiful thing. I think it works. I think the legacy of it, I'm not taking away from that. I'm just saying how I, how I saw it kind of evolve. And when I saw it injected into Soul Train, I think I didn't take it as like, oh, I'm learning something or that it was this prideful thing. I think, like I said, it was kind of coinciding with what Black people were getting from Ebony as well as Jet Magazine. In my, that's an opinion. Right. And when Soul Train initially came on the air, I believe it only aired in, think I believe, seven cities. But as the show gained steam and momentum, it spread like wildfire across the country. And especially in areas where African-American populations were very dense. And it yes. was for some people's first exposure into African-American culture. And then once Elton John, David Bowie started coming on the show, that was when mainstream said hmm let me try to see if i can try to get some r&b airplay and try to gain some traction on that side of the fence by going on this show well you know i'm going to say this about life it's it's easy for us to sit here and say about what we know and are comfortable with in way of entertainment and let's say dance shows or entertainment or variety shows let's say but if we go all the way back like i said there wasn't a lot of places you saw black people so what was so prominent and so great about Soul Train, it was raw. It wasn't Donnie going really polish it up. This is the way it was real life we got to see on television. These black kids dancing, dressing, being creative. This is like our snapshot. Where else were we going to see people doing what we saw if it wasn't for Soul, Soul Train, you know what I mean? And then it was a microorganism. It was like not like now, like you have a target where you live, I have a target where I live. If we all shop at the same place and we all look the same. However, back in those days, again, there was actually an East Coast and there was a West Coast. And you could tell as soon as you saw whoever that there was a difference. So what Soul Train brought together was a country looking like, wow, look how beautiful we are. Because in Los Angeles, everybody was from somewhere else. You ask any of those kids, well, I'm from Chicago. Well, I'm from here, I'm from there, Philly. I'm from." That's why it looks so eclectic and so beautiful and just the perfect timing right after the civil, um, you know, the the, what we just come out of as black people. It was a perfect thing to show, this is us, this is our pride. We're not trying to be white. We're not trying to have blonde hair, blue eyes. What we're trying to do is have afros and be black. And when that music was infused with that man coming out of 68, 69, um, Curtis Mayfield, James Brown, that real power, Aretha Franklin, you know, the spiritual behind those songs and why it's powerful. That's why when they try to reenact those dances, when they're doing these soul train 
these uh, series and that, I always have a problem with because you have to sit down with those dancers and say, look, this is a spirit that you're dancing while you're doing this particular dance. You didn't just get up there and do the rock steady. Is that at that time, we were so suppressed and have finally got released. When we talk about rock steady, it is like it's going to be the last time that you get to get on the dance floor. It's going to be like I'm around my people. It's like being in, in, in a tribe. And that's what it felt like watching Soul Train, like you watching our tribe. It was not like today where the Kardashians have come and picked from our, our the way that we do things. Everybody has picked from us, Justin Timberlake. And I'm not knocking these people. They're good at what they do. I'm just saying, but back then, it was like you really felt what it felt like to be Black. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where you got to see it. Right. In its authentic form, raw, pure, and uncut. Yes. That's what was so magical about it. And then, like, you even know, and then we talk a little little pieces of soul train, you start thinking, okay, like you said, the scramble board is like, it gives us knowledge, but not only that you're being filled with, oh, look how, you know, women were being filled with, look how I can look, but we didn't have a lot to pull from. Where were we going to get different looks and different styles and different, you know, I can go on and on about that, but where were we going to get that? But you know, that you weren't even knowing what you're gathering, because remember, we didn't see a lot of each other on television. Now you're saying, okay, I like the way she's wearing her Afro. I like those earrings. I like those shoes. It changed also culture for black people because most things were geared toward whites and what their kids would want to do. But here comes Soul Train giving us, now we can wear red, black, and green. Now we can wear an Afro. Now, you see what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now we're wearing a peace sign. Now we're, so now here our culture is changing. And furthermore, now we got this flash, you know, the black exploitation films were coming out, which I thought was, yeah, now that I'm, older and can look back at that. I don't know if it was so much a negative, but I remember us, the kids, emulating those people that we saw. So some people got into drugs become of it. Some people became designers because of big ass collars and the bell bottoms. There's so many things that that um, trends and um, popular things like Soul Train change your culture. And it's certainly, like you said, you know, you were stating about what Soul Train did for us. Yes, it certainly was something that carried the soul of Black people into everyone's home every weekend. And it was the hippest trip in America. 60 nonstop minutes across the tracks of your mind inside the exciting <laughs> world of soul. See, I know my story, as you know. <laughs> You're doing it real well, man. Of course, of, of course. Soul Train was appointment television for me after cartoons. 12 o'clock every Saturday morning on WTVD Channel 11, Raleigh, Durham, Fayetteville, North Carolina. People all over the world, my mama, don't disturb me. As soon as that train and that eclipse flashed across, I was glued. That's ball, man. I love it. Yeah, I was glued. Now, how far in advance were the episodes taped? So, okay, let's start in January. There are nine, just like all the other television um, series, I'll, I'll say that they're taped like in nine months. So you'll go from like January until the summer month, and then you take a three month break, and then you come back in September and then tape, just like kind of like school. So you come back September, October, November, then you take a break, then you come back January, and then you do that again. So that you're taping only nine months out of the, out of the year. So in that, those nine months, let's take a month. There's one weekend out of the month, the Saturday and Sunday that we take. And the Saturday and Sunday will start about 12 noon, let's say. Everybody's in line. We get in the studio about 12 noon. We kind of sit around. Then they'll say dancers on the floor. We all get up, boom. 
on Sunday, it's like the same thing. We dance all day long until like uh, on the Saturday night, we dance to about eight or nine o'clock. Because as soon as we leave Soul Train, we're going right to get something eaten into the club or just right to the club because they had food there. On a Sunday night, what everyone is, they used to do, we used to do the Soul Train um, lines on Saturday because Don, we all be so fresh and they try to get that raw energy like you just walk in, boom, right? But what would happen is everybody would come to the Soul Train line, but they wouldn't stay to dance. They'd leave and he'd be pissed off because they'd leave and probably go dance on American Bandstand because they'd kind of be taping at the same time or whatever else they wanted to do. A lot of them were part of the um, SAG and AFTRA, you know, doing extracurricular things outside of Soul Train. So they would just take their little Soul Train line on Saturday and not come back. So Don put them, the last thing that we would do would be the Soul Train lines on Sunday nights, which was most of the time that I danced there to the 80s. So we dance all day Sunday, then they'd say, lines and that would be what everybody's waiting for most some people wouldn't even get there till the sunday evening to come and just go down the soldier line true story so then we'd all just jump you know they'd say lines and everybody that was pretty much in a room so let's say it'd be about 100 people all getting this line and then don or eric would go start at the very uh furthest part of, you know closest to the stage as they could come and come back this direction telling people okay not you not you not you Get out the line, get out the line, man. You see people getting heartbroken, bro. I mean, tears, crying. Why not? How come I can kind of um, pay their way, whatever they could, negotiate something to get down the line. But um, yeah, I had to sit down sometimes. Eric would say, go sit down. And, you know, it just would be, well, what can you do? Be pissed. But you couldn't do nothing about it. Right. Now, were there some particular cool points that dancers would do to either get more camera time, get more features on, let's say, center stage, the risers, or be able to go down the line like props, wild outfits, anything like that? Well, yeah. I mean, you always wanted to do something that was going to bring attention to yourself. And I, I don't know, if, again, I don't know what's thought out. I mean, it is like, I'm going to wear this, and then you don't realize how popular it's going to get. Well, the reason I wore my foxtail is because a friend of a roommate said, you know, when I watch Soul Train, and I'm trying to point you out to people, it's hard for me to point you out because all the black guys are tall, thin, probably had a big afro at some time or whatever. So she bought me this Foxtails, my first ones. Well, that's not true. This is my second ones. I had one in high school that I didn't really call a Foxtails. This is tail that I wore, and I didn't know what, you know, it was just something I had. But when I got to Soul Train, it became a Foxtail, reason being because they started calling me D-Fox. And that's where that all derived from. But it was not for her. I wouldn't have probably had a, soul, a tail on Soul Train, except that she said, hey, you ought to wear something that makes you stand out so when people see, I can say, oh, that's my friend right there. He has that tail on. That's how that all came about. Now, so let, let's say like a Louis. Louis always had sharp suits. So then that was his real life. He just wore them suits and wear them on Soul Train. It just became a persona. He took a little bit from Elvis Presley, took a little bit from Michael Jackson. You know, he tells his own story well. Every person that danced on Soul Train, in my opinion, especially in the 80s, like the 70s people, they were raw. Like they didn't, who were they gonna emulate really, except from the, like I said, the black exploitation movies or Motown artists like Diana Ross or The Temptations, they would take something or James Brown say, but they didn't have a whole lot of people to pull from like we did. Cause in the 70s, we had all those 70s groups, let's say the dramatics. I mean, somebody danced bomb ass choreography that you didn't even know that you were stealing from until it's time to get up on stage and now you're doing it. So we were pulling from all the, all those 
things that came before Soul Train. The, the 80s, man, it was just like, um, you would steal your style from David Bowie. I might see something he wore, Elton John. I mean, it was those people that changed all the time. I'll say Michael Jackson and Madonna and Prince are from that area where they taught the 90s kids how to do that. But the people I'm saying this stuff from were from the 70s and then it is passed down. By the time you get down to the 2000s, you saw those kids are wearing like some of everything because they've had so much to pull from, which would be funny now that we have this COVID to see what happens with fashion on television or the pop trends. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the 70 dancers who laid the groundwork for future generations to come on the show like a Demita Joe, Tyrone Proctor, um, Fred Rerun Barry, Jeffrey mm. Daniel, Jody Watley, and the importance of Jeffrey and Jody was because through Soul Train, we have Solar, Sounds of Los Angeles Records, initially put out the Soul Train gang and then later formed Salomar, which I mentioned, Jeffrey Daniel, Jody Watley. Another gentleman, I can't recall his name, was originally in Shalimar. It was when they put out Take That to the Bank. Then he later left, and then that's when Howard Hewitt came in. Yeah, there was two mem members before Howard Hewitt that were uh, the lead singers. Um, one is Munfrey. I can't think of his first name right now. And then there's Gerald. can't remember Gerald's last name. So there was a, a person, Munfrey. I could run down and get the album real quick, but I know it's Munfrey first then a Gerald, and I can't remember Gerald's last name. I'm sorry, man. And then there was Howard. And then, um, you know, then there was, uh, what was it? the football player, Davis, Anthony Davis, I think his name was, was the last lead singer of Shalimar. But yeah, they, they coincided right together because Dick Griffey and Don Cornelius got together. And that company just, like, when I got there in the 80s, man, I keep, that's, a, that's where I was, I keep mentioning the 80s because that was a convergence of where everything just seemed to come together all the styles from the 70s, all the futuristic, everything that we thought was gonna be the synthesizer, the way we look, the new materials, the way everybody just looked polished. And when that 80s hit and the sheet came out, it just changed. You saw a shift, just like 85, you saw a shift when, the, when you started hearing rap music, the, when the convergence of the New York styles started getting bigger than the LA styles. So it was just this New York, LA, New York, LA. Then they started putting overseas like a little bit of Paris. So it's just, you know, it's just phenomenal to be this age that I am and watch all that play out and still be here to see what you guys get to see. Like this girl ate her. Oh my God. And um, what's his name? Um, the Bruno Mars song. It just sounds so like R&B. So it's just phenomenal, man, to see all these things pulled together, even as a kid, like I'm saying, through the 70s, well, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s is what I got to see. And then um, here I am still alive watching all this before my eyes. It's like, it's incredible. Right, because when I listen to artists like her, Bruno, Anderson, Pop, they're pretty much reintroducing older sounds and styles to a newer generation because Leave the Door Open is straight out of 70 Soul. Oh, yeah. Yeah, everything about it, man. When you hear it, and it's like you're being fed, like it's like you haven't, you've been having some like fast food for so long. And then somebody sit down, like your grandma, say, hey, sit down, baby, eat this food. That's what that song feels like to everybody. That's why I just shot the number one. It's like, we've been hungry for that because it's soul music. It ain't just some pop stuff with the synthesizer and something real quick and a little lyric that you keep saying over and over. It's real music. Rib sticking and it's good for the soul. Now, when hip hop 
came in on Soul Train. You know, Don really wasn't a huge fan of hip hop because I believe in my opinion, it wasn't of his generation. It's for the young, by the young. And he was like, even though it's not my thing, eventually I'm gonna have to put it on because it's what the dancers want. It's what's in and gotta do what's good for business. Well, I'm gonna give an opinion of what, this is my belief about what I think Don thought. Because a lot of us thought this about hip hop when it was first infused. What they, what those called hip hop, called hip hop. To me, it, it's a conglomeration of a lot of things that happen to be called hip hop. But okay, we're gonna put a title on it, that's fine. So when it introduced that sound, which was not melodic, it was a dum, 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 dum. Don didn't hear the melodies. He didn't hear the flow, like you said, was used to. But to him, that was music. What was new is that kids are building something that they don't need melodies anymore. That was kind of a shock to the system. Like, what? What do you mean you don't need melodies? You don't need... So I don't think it was so much that he didn't like hip hop. It was just that he didn't see how it was going to be good for a dance show. Because he didn't see what we would do. I'm talking about Black people. What would we be doing to that music is what I think was taking him aback. It was rap. It was sharp. It was beats. It wasn't like I said, melodic, until they started, you know, once rap started evolving, then they started like, especially Puffy, he probably put most of the the, the harmonies and the uh, orchestrations. I'm using him as an example, Teddy Riley, you know, these people were putting harmonies and melodies also in rap. But when it first came out, like a Curtis Blow, I'm Curtis Blow and I want you to know that the, and Don didn't know because it was so choppy. He's like, well, how in the hell? Think about it, if you just go back in time. So I don't think it was so much he didn't like it, he didn't understand it. Mm -hmm. And once That's again, my opinion. Yeah, and once again, it's more of like the young and those who are in upper management or tastemakers, we gotta understand this culture because at the time, nobody knew that hip hop would still last to this day some four plus decades later and it was still seen as a fad and it was going to go the way of disco yeah culture is never stagnant that's not something new to your ears you know it's never stagnant it's always evolving it's always changing and i think a lot of things that become real popular or where people make a lot of money on let's say is a lot of it's luck it's where timing meets preparation where somebody's taking the time and they go i'm going to try this if it was always just a target, you go, boom, it, think about how many people would have hit records because their target is, I'm going to put out what I believe somebody loves. Well, no, that ain't it. It just depends on what people are feeling. That's why that hit went to number one because it's something we've been hungry for. But when we were talking about Soul Train, what I thought it gave us, it, it was an insight to our Black lives that we didn't, where else are we going to see it? It's the only window that we have into Black people. Now we get Black entertainment television. And I think it didn't do us, in my opinion, it didn't do us justice because most of the things that we promote on there are negativity. I think we could have took a higher road in the, in the series programming of BET in its early stages. And that's, that's in another opinion. I thought that that's where Soul Train could have shined. And I think still, Viacom owns those tapes and they're not even releasing them, really making, showing us how it used to be. So all we could take is what we know and what we believe and not really look at it objectively and quit letting everybody else make things about Soul Train and let it tell its own stories. Because they, there's bits and pieces even on YouTube. That's not the, really the story of Soul Train and how it clearly evolved. 
I don't even think the series of what they're doing, even about the Soul Train story, is really telling the real story from a dancer's point of view, especially. Now, Don, his creativity and everything, I see where they throw in things and interject things. Well, the time frames, a lot of that is off. And like I said, and even when they're doing the dances, so some of the authenticity of what we were as Black people, I think keeps getting watered down. Even when I went to the African-American Museum, there was only a small section for Soul Train. And I'm thinking, wow, of all these Black people that come through, that was really the only place that we had to see one another. And it still keeps just being this little window. And I think it's a lot greater than that. Soul Train should definitely even be like a Grammy, have its own museum. It's that big, in my opinion. And I think it's just not regarded, it's regarded highly, but I think it should be regarded higher in that what it did for our black culture and those people, artists, musicians, uh, comedians, actors, all those people that came to Soul Train in whatever capacity, people that are unknown that became known even. And I think there's room for that. Right, I agree. And we could go down the list of all the famous alum that came through those doors and danced. Rosie Perez, Nick Cannon, Vivica A. Fox, Avion Crockett, yourself, Shabadoo, Rerun, Demita Joe, Tyrone Proctor. The list goes on and on of all the great dancers that came and made their names because of this show. You know, I want to say this about the camaraderie and making the show, because I don't think we touched on this. You know, when you're at home and you're getting ready to go to Soul Train, it was one of the most exciting. It was like going, getting ready to go to Christmas morning. I don't think we touch on that a lot. So being to show up and I would see Louie and Juliet and Cheryl Song, I was just excited in person when I saw them as I was when, I, when I'm on, you know, at home watching it on television. It wasn't just like, oh, yeah, there's that person over there. It was a lot of excitement, man, and a lot of magic. And you got to see people's creativity. So it'd be like everybody walking up with the, you know, you're looking at everybody, it's like Easter almost every time you see it, somebody has something new on. There's a few people that rep had repetition or you see Otis and what costume is he gonna wear today? So if you can imagine all of us being in one room and that going on, there was a magic that I, I can't even describe when you're there. And it's like, you're at a, let's say high, you know how you are in high school, you know, you, you, you have a rival school and you know those people that go to that rival school, mm -hmm. but your school is still like, yeah, this is our school. Well, that's how I felt to be part of Soul Train, that it really was like a, sor a, a fraternity or sorority. There is a camaraderie. And once you have that experience, you there's something about it that you can just look at the other person that you're on stage with and know like, wow, remember those days. It was that exciting being there. So it wasn't just about the music and just the dancing. It was being in a room with all these creative people, like I said, from everywhere converging together with one thing in mind is to get on stage and make these shows that in two weeks we get to sit down and watch ourselves and see what do we do. It was that exciting. Right. And you know you're doing something right when you have people that want to come in and do what it is that you all are doing, i.e. Dick Clark and Soul Unlimited. But once Don Knees found that out, he's like, nope, this ain't happening. I'm going to be the only yeah. game in town. Right. Well, one time we, there was a walkout because some of the dancers had complained. A few people talk about this, but um, Don had banned some of the dancers from coming back because there was a picket. They had um, let the word out that Don Kines was not paying the dancers because he called us atmosphere, but they wanted to get paid their SAG and after uh, whatever they were due to have a day's work, you know, which was like two days. And Don wasn't having it. So when they picketed, 
He just never fell. So some of those dancers, that was the reason that they weren't on the show anymore is because they couldn't cross the picket line because of their contracts trying to be actors. Right. And of course, with dancing on the show, it wasn't paid. So I'm sure a lot of folks supplemented by having regular day gigs or doing dance gigs on the side, but kind of keep it on the hush because if Don probably found out, that probably would have been, nope, you can't come back and dance on the show. I don't think most of us that came, here's another opinion. I don't think most of the people that dance on Soul Train came there to get famous or get on, you know, just be on television. It was more to it. It was, it was about either you came there because you had a style or you really believe that I'm one of the best dancers in the world. Most people did not show up going, I want to be famous. It, it wasn't, you didn't hear a lot of that in the room or people with their resumes and their headshots. It wasn't that kind of atmosphere. It was really, I want to be on television. I want to dance. That's really what it was about. Meaning that most people, they didn't really have egos because in the room, but it was competitive, but it wasn't like, I know I'm going to be on stage. It was like, well, I hope I'm on stage and I hope I get seen. I hope I look nice enough to be on television. And when I do, I just hope all the elements meet. And then that's how a, a lot of us just went there. I don't think everybody went there to be famous. Right. It was all about showcasing your style. And hey, if I get something out of it, then let the chips fall yeah. where they may. Now, I want to back up a little bit to when you first came in at 80. Did you have a veteran on the set that kind of laid to you the ground rules whenever Mr. Cornelius came onto the floor, a la like how certain people were explained to the rules when working with James Brown, like call, refer to him as Mr. Don't do this do that because when Mr. Cornelius came onto the floor, he meant business. Well, uh, I'll tell you this. When I first came on, there's a singer. Her name is Penny Ford. Have you heard of her? Uh, she has, mm -hmm. Yeah, she has records out and she's been a background singer. I think she sang on Chaka Khan and some others. Really nice woman. I, man, I love her. Well, that's the first person I met when I walked into the Soul Train and sat down in those bleachers, like I told you, waiting for them to say dances on the floor. And I was, she kind of told me what went on, where to go. But I wouldn't say, no, I didn't have like a mentor when I went there. How I got there is uh, I won a dance contest and Jeffrey Daniels, who was a uh, the uh, one of the um, judges that night is how I got um, familiar with him, with my brother. My brother was making music at that time. And we met him at this club called, uh, eh, eh, I'm sorry, man. Uh, da, 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 da. Oh my God, I can't think of it. Uh, Ichabod's. There was a club called Ichabod's in the city of Fullerton. And that's where, like, like I said, Shabadoo would go there, Fred Berry, a lot of the dancers would go there. Uh, all the lockers went to this club, what I'm talking about. And um, that's why I won this contest with uh, Jeffrey Daniels being a, a dance, dance um, judge who told me how to get on Soul Train. So when I went to Soul Train, I just told uh, Chuck Johnson, was the floor director at that time, told Chuck Johnson, and Chuck Johnson is who let me in the gate. So I didn't really have to have somebody tell me what to do when I got there or what was wrong or what was right. He just kind of, the floor director just said, be here, be there. So it wasn't like you need mentors. I, I don't think that I had anybody that did that for me. And I'm not saying other people didn't, but no, I didn't have that. Right. And kind of went a roundabout way of telling that, but yeah. But no, it's all good. That's what we do here at Beyond the Album Cover. We get all of the stories. And the story I want to know about the infamous two-piece KFC box and the soda. Right. Well, as simple as that. Um, if you look at the when uh, the hippest trip in America, I have uh, credits in the hippest trip of America for bringing some of the footage that you see in that, in that uh, documentary. 
So I'm really proud of that because um, no one at the time that I was doing was bringing, there were a few people, I shouldn't say no one. There were a few people that brought their video cameras to the set and were able to use it, but I did that. And I have a lot of that footage that one day I'm gonna let somebody see. But on the set, I filmed us getting that chicken where the people were actually in line. And um, I think they show a few clips of it in that documentary. But all it was, man, they'd have this uh, huge, like um, a, a, a rolling tray, like with a pile of uh, boxes of Kentucky Fried Chicken. So you know the chicken would be there because on the set you could smell it. And what they'd do, they'd go, okay, lunch. And when lunch hit, you'd be trying to run to get the coldest sodas because once those sodas that were in the, this barrel, they didn't have enough ice to get all the sodas cold. So that's why you really go try to get to the barrel first to get your cold Springfield soda because you didn't want a hot one. And then you wanted to be one of the first ones to get the chicken. Now, a lot of people wanted to be the last ones to get the food because once everybody got their chicken, they'd be leftover boxes. And then sometimes they could get two boxes. So there's always a trick to it. You know, trying to be slick and somebody, I don't want my chicken. Well, just get your box and let me have yours then. Because we'd leave it in the car and then go out somewhere fancy to eat that was nearby the Soul Train. So a lot of my chicken was my food. After the club, I'd already have something to eat. <laughs> I wouldn't eat it for lunch. We'd go to like a, somewhere close by and get our grub on. Mm, I agree. It's nothing like a two-piece KFC late night <laughs> to, to get you through dancing and sweating. Man, it was good. I don't care what nobody said. That chicken was good every time, G. That's because KFC does chicken right. <laughs> As they, as they always do but i know the feeling about making sure you want to get that cold soda at the top because if you go to the bottom it's flat it's warm unless you knew somebody say hey hey give, give, me, give me the box and give me a soda I, i'll look i'll look out for you next time all right it was kind of like wink wink nudge nudge kind of deal now i want to talk about tyrone proctor a little bit I had a chance oh, okay. to interview him uh, back in college um, before his passing, and he did choreography for New Kids on the Block. And I had a chance to interview Danny Wood. And when Danny told me about the move for the right stuff, a lot of people outside of urban America would know it from them, but it was from Morris Day in the Time, Jungle Love. But before that, it was a dance, I believe, called The Penguin. And I saw in a couple of 70s Soul Train episodes, a lot of the dancers doing that move. So it's almost as if like, hey, we're going to take urban culture, introduce it to the masses, but at the same time, pay homage to where it all started from. And that's the one thing mm -hmm. I always appreciate about New Kids on the Block and other artists that say, hey, it didn't start with us. We're just exposing you all to something that you may not have had no idea about. Well, yeah, Tyrone, you know, like with Jody and Jeffrey, they did bring, like I said, Soul Train was this little window that we had about being black, that timing met preparation. And a lot of the things that they did, like, again, they weren't planning it. They were just living their lives and creating these moves that are still, let's say, valuable and still done today and those. So when I see a group like, like you said, like a new kids on the block doing old moves, it makes me smile because I know where it derived from because I'm one of those old schoolers that got to see all of it happen. And I'm very proud when even, I don't care what group it is when they're doing something that they've seen from Soul Train because nobody owns it. It's just something, again, it's soulful. And it's something that, why wouldn't somebody want to do that? 
You know, like I heard Bruno Mars say a, a quote this morning, I was listening to him and Anderson Pack say this. He said, well, people are getting on me for, you know, appropriating um, black people and how you guys do things. He said, but why would I not want to? He goes, just like Michael Jordan being the best in basketball. If I'm trying to play basketball and I'm not trying to be a Michael Jordan, what is the point? So he's right. If that's the best, if the best music is R&B and the best moves are how we do things, then why would he not want to do that? And wouldn't it be lost if somebody's not doing it? Because they all they're doing is watering it down. At least when he's doing it, he's doing it with almost expertise. He's doing it not, not just trying to do something to make people get a buck. He's doing it because this is his craft. And so I appreciate it when people like the new kids on the block are giving homage and letting people know that, hey, this is exactly how it is because they've learned from somebody that was there. Mm -hmm. Now, was it always weird for the current dancers on the set to see, let's say the former dancers on the show that had success in other avenues like a Shabadoo once break, Breaking Head or Jeffrey and Jody with Salomar, then later Jody with her solo career? Because I remember in the documentary on VH1, Jeffrey said that whenever Shalomar wasn't on tour, he would come back and sneak on set and dance. Yeah, because one of the times in 1980, if you look, me and Jeffrey, that was the only time that I was on stage, he and I were on stage at the same time. And it was so much fun, man. But no, when they would come back to visit, man, it was like, again, it was like a sorority for attorney. If a frat brother shows up, he's like, man, what's up? Get up here. You, you want to see that person because you, and so let's say when I got there in 1980, so when I would see, like you said, a Shabadoo or a Pat Davis, especially, or a Demetri Joe Freeman or a Tyrone Proctor, Bro, yes, it was excitement in the room. Now, when a Rosie Perez or let's say a Louis Ski Carr show up or a Cheryl Song, well, I dance right next to them. So it's a little bit of a different feeling because I didn't sit and admire them, although I danced next to them and admire them. But it was a little, it's a lot different than like what you're saying. Because to me, those people, Thelma Davis, some of these people that went before me in the 70s, man, I was just sitting at the TV in awe of these people. And then even in person, you know, I got to know all of them personally. So I have my own personal relationship with each of them, you know, in my mind and in real life, I can say, well, we did this, this, and this, but I would say I, I really truly admire them as the stars that they should be. I really admire them. But the ones that I dance next to, it's a little harder for me because they seem like they're just people I grew up with. And mm -hmm. then the people that came after me that even might be famous that came on Soul Train, I don't really know them. And it's few people that I look at as stars because I, I was surrounded by them. So it's a, I have a different view of it but I appreciate almost everyone that came through the doors of Soul Train. And I think every time that they came back to visit, there was some excitement, no matter which one that it was. Right, because it always seemed, at least from my vantage point being a viewer, that whenever, you know, former dancers that had success come back to perform on the show, whatever, it seemed like Don got extra jazz because it feels like, hey, you know, my son or daughter went out to the world, made a name for themselves, and they're coming back home. Yes, I, yes. He, I, you really, that was real. Just like you're saying, you could feel it through the television that he was genuinely happy for the people that have come through Soul Train. So, you know, there's some un unknown people that have come through Soul Train that they, they get little talk about. So the leader of the bus boys, did you know, he, I can't remember, man, I hate when I bring up something. I yeah, I know the name. bus boys. I think they did the record for 48 hours for Eddie Murphy, I think. So the lead singer of the bus boys dance on Soul Train. 
There's a, a, a great singer named Donna Allen. She danced on Soul Train. So a lot of people that weren't even well known by even black people have come through the doors of Soul Train. So even when Don saw those people, he was happy. Even some designers of clothes, when he just see people that he recognized that danced on the show and they came back, it was like a, I would say not like a dad, but like an uncle, like an uncle that saw one of his kids go out there and do something and come back. Even if you were looking well, because I remember I came back, I had been gone for like three years and I came back just to visit. And when I did, I had just long hair and a full on beard. And you know, man, go up on stage looking like Jesus. So I want to see this episode, it was in 93, that I looked like Jesus when John Cornelius said that to me. And I, I saw it once on television, but I'd like to see that again. So he would do things like that. He would see you and have welcome arms for you if he did. Right. And also, should um, should I would be remiss if I didn't mention Jermaine Stewart. Oh, yeah. Jermaine Stewart was... Yeah, a lot of those people, like I said, you'll see them in clubs. So I saw them before they were famous, but they were famous to me because they were on Soul Train. But when they made it big, man, yeah, everybody was excited for them. Like O'Brien, the you know, he has a one of the sings one of the theme songs. He's from my neighborhood. Also, I didn't, I didn't mention him with Casper and Cooley and those because he wasn't a dancer that was on Soul Train, but definitely a, a big part of uh, you know the Soul Train history of it. Um, he's from our neighborhood as well. Matter of fact, I think he just lived a few blocks from, from uh, Casper, which is Jerome Candidate and Derek Jackson, Casper and Cooley. But yeah, we're all from the same area. Wow. And the theme song you're referring to that O'Brien did, Soul Train. Soul Trains are coming from 83 to 87. Now, the theme that I grew up with was TSOP 87 with George Duke and Howard Hewitt does the vocals on that. Now, did you all get a heads up whenever there was a change in set or theme, or you just found out first they're taping up, oh, we got a new set and a new theme? Yeah, you'd walk in, you'd not know. It would just, you could kind of tell because sometimes one of the sets started getting really raggedy, you're like, wow, they're gonna change it. But bro, when you'd walk in and they change the set, or sometimes we change actually the whole studio. We did that like, so we started at KTTV studio. Then we moved to uh, the, um, KTLA studio, then we went to the uh, uh, Charlie Chaplin studio, which was at AM studio. So those, and then Paramount. So there are four studios that I happen to have gone through with Soul Train. And that was from 80 through 91. Um, wait, I'm sorry, man, I got sidetracked. What was the question? The, the, sorry, que the question was, did you get a heads up prior to showing up to taping that we got a new set oh. or a new theme? For the show. No, never. It was always a surprise to most, I believe. Now, Cheryl Song might be one of the people that kind of would know because she worked in the office. So if I had to say, who would have known if there was a new set or a new theme song? She might be the person, but everyone else, they, we, we weren't privy to things that were working in the office and that we would just walk in and next thing you know, boom, it'd be a new set and be just happy because like, wow, I wonder what the new theme song is going to sound like. So was, a lot of what we did on Soul Train for the dancers were surprises. Absolutely surprises, first time seeing it, a lot of first time hearing, and a lot of first time experiencing. Right, and I don't know if this was more than just rumor or was this supposed to happen? Was Teddy Riley supposed to do a Soul Train theme song at one point? Was, is that, was that truth or was that merely hearsay in certain circles? Well, I'll say this, I, I heard it was a rumor I happen to have known Teddy Riley back in those days. I, you know, I'd see him in a lot of places, but I never would have known that. I mean, he would, I don't think he was telling his business. So only person would know that 
would be Teddy Riley, Don Cornelius, or if Teddy Riley told you today, because there would be no way for me to, to have known that. No, I don't know. But I believe it because I'm sure a lot of people submitted. There's a lot of uh, Soul Train theme songs that people submitted to Don, believe it or not. And you'll find them if you type in, like, I think Soul Train, a lot of those songs, like on YouTube or Google, a lot of those songs that are titled Soul Train is probably something that they submitted to Don to be a theme song. Wow. Because I remember when the new thing, Would You Like to Dance, came out in 93, Everett Harp with the bleed sax solo, Dr. Freeze, I believe, did the production. Then you had Naughty by Nature doing the rap. And for me, that was refreshing to hear, you know, rap over, you know, the famous Soul Train theme. And then to see the new open with the different clips interspersed over the years, it, it was felt like it was a breath of fresh air coming from TSOP 87 to the new theme in 93, which was used almost up until the end of the show run in 06, I believe, because I think at that time they did an updated version of TSO, TSOP. Right. I, again, it was it, how it evolved, you know, to some like old ears, like I had old ears, that wasn't melodic for me. It was like dun, 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 choppy. But yeah, you had new ears, you know, you, you're the newer generation. So the way you, we see and perceive things are differently. I wanted that old, you know, I'm used to that melodic, like music now, it's coming back to the way it sounded. So I think it's just a preference of ear. I think it was great because I'm always, I want kids to have what's new. I wouldn't want it, I wouldn't have wanted someone to stop me from, like when we changed from 1970, it just seemed like when the Jackson 5 came out, there was one way that black kids were. Once the Jackson 5 came out, it changed the way black kids were perceived forever. So there's certain time periods where it just, you, society changes. You just don't realize it, but it's changing like right now. This COVID thing is really, I'm bringing that up because it's changing everything right now. What's gonna happen now? What Everybody's been locked up. We're, we're seeing it now. Look at these the music that's coming out now that people just been in the house. Beautiful soul felt music because people are now spilling their what's inside of them, not just making quick bucks again. And I think that's what's gonna come from this a lot of negative is going to come out of it. But again, I would like to see a dance show come out now. Now that we're all getting back together, I think it would be perfect, the perfect timing to have something like that. Right. I definitely agree with you. And when I was looking at the VH1 documentary, Don Canoes was stating how when TSOP came out initially by MFSB, produced by Gamble and Huff, he regretted not lending the Soul Train name to the song because I believe at the time he was saying how he was very guarded and protective of the name. Right. I, I, I think, yeah, I would kick myself too, man, because that song was a hit. I mean, as soon as you hear it, what comes to mind? Soul Train. So, yeah, I think he missed something that would have been greater for him. But I think none, no less that it still is, uh, we all think of Dr. Nears when we hear it. So maybe he didn't get the money, but what's the money? But what it really stood for, I think he got everything and more that he could have gotten out of that theme song. Right. And I want to go to a particular group that I felt grew up on Soul Train, New Edition, because when they first came on the show doing Candy Girl, when Lewski went up on stage and Don was like, Big Louie don't go on stage with the dancers. And then to see their evolution when Johnny Gill came into the group and all of the solo acts that splintered off. So what was it like for you as a dancer to see their evolution as a group 
but also as solo acts that branched off of that tree known as New Edition. Well, you know what was so cool? That same day that Louis jumped on stage, New Edition was just giving all the dancers props. I mean, Louis got his up on stage, but dude, they were like, they came up to me, Ralph. I was feeling like this. I have pictures with them from that time, you know, of, of the taping. And it was just, it's magical, man, when somebody famous comes to you. Because we they're like kids to me, literally like kids. Like, I think I was probably 20, I was almost 30 years old when they, when New Edition hit. So to me, I'm like looking at these little boys that are, that are making good music, not as like they're famous like they are today. It was just kids over there. But to see who they are and how they evolved, because I mean, look how many uh, groups have come through Soul Train. I'll just throw out some like Shy and um, uh, help me name some of the groups that just came through the 90s. Joe to see True Boys to Men. Yeah, true. There's so many groups that came through there and you see evolve. You never know who's going to stick and who's going to be the ones, the famous ones. It, it depends on society again. But to, to know now what we know, oh man, it's like, wow, who knew that those kids are going to be doing that? Because I'll take a group that I, when they came, dude, they were so sharp, was uh, Five Star. Oh yeah. I just knew Five Star was just going to be like the most famous black group in the world. I mean, they did some stuff, but they didn't just blow up like I thought. Because they were as polished as they are, were as the music was so tight, everything, all the elements were there. And then again, I think Shalimar missed it by just a mark. I think if Shalimar had done one more album with Jody and, and Jeffrey, and, you know, the three of them and Howard Hewitt, I think they would be astronomical stars if they had done one more album. They were right there where they were just going to go boom, because they were right there with Michael Jackson just start setting it off. And that solar sound was so good and so perfect. I think that breakup of them was really not good for, well, we know now it's all fine, but man, I always have the wonderment if it had Shalimar had stuck together. That's one of my biggest wishes is that. I really wanted that big fame for them. And not that nothing to take away from them, man, but that at that time, to me, that was one of the greatest, even though they didn't do the music, but one of the greatest pop groups ever is Shalimar. I think they're so underrated. I definitely agree. And speaking of the UK, you spoke about Five Star. Jeffrey Daniel, he hosted a British version of Soul Train called 620 yeah. Soul Train. Now, did Don have any affiliation with that? Or was that completely an idea that Jeffrey had to say, let me see how I can take Soul Train over here and put it over in the UK because over there, on top of the pops, it would be rare to see any black artists on top of the pops because that was more of their version of American Bandstand over in the UK. So I can't speak on things I really don't know, but rumors, you know, things I've heard through the years. I heard Don was fine with what Jeffrey did. I don't know their negotiation of what that did, but I always have heard that Don appreciated and trusted Jeffrey to be the one, if anybody to do it, would have been Jeffrey. When Jeffrey would come to Soul Train, Don always trusted Jeffrey's creativity. He didn't put a bridle on Jeffrey's creativity. Just like Louis, Louis could kind of do what he want. They weren't doing that when the camera wasn't on, but Don allowed them to do certain things. Well, he did that with Louis as well. I didn't really have that freedom to jump around. Plus that's not really my personality as well. You know, meaning jump around, I don't mean like just jump around, but I mean to be able to make skits evolve while you're watching TV. My thing was just dancing, wearing the styles. 
Jeffrey and Louis are really very creative souls that are always thinking and wanting to leave people with a lasting experience. Mm -hmm. That's those two characters, in my opinion. Right. And what was your take when the Soul Train Music Awards was first created in 87? Well, that's a good question. I was just looking at this ticket I have from that time. You know, it's very hurtful, Jarrell, to tell you for the dancers because none of us got to participate in the actual show. It just felt like here we are doing all this dancing, doing all the work, and then you go get paid, trained choreographer, dancers to just dress and do what we do. So it was twofold. We were sitting in the, in the seats and our hearts were hurting because it's like, we ain't even getting recognized and we do all the work. Why aren't we doing openings? Why aren't we dancing with some of the groups just like we do on television? So it was that, but then the good part was at least there is an award show. And at least we do get to see those people because it took Soul Train to another level. If it would just have been a dance show, it would just been a dance show. But to give those awards and make it the only place where a black artist could receive a black award is Soul Train. And it's again, like we talked at the top of however long we've been talking, is why that's important because it is the foundation of black television is one of the platforms is Soul Train. Mm -hmm. Now- so Yeah, it hurt. Yes, yes, so bittersweet. So I want to switch gears to something a little bit comical. What was your take when In Living Color did the spoof of Soul Train and they called it Old Train? <laughs> it meant, I was on the show, was it? I, no, I, I had just left the show about two or three years when that viewed, because I remember I just got married. Um, it was just a, funny to me. I didn't take it to heart or funny. I just thought, hey, we finally made Soul Train is going is everywhere now. It's 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 in comedy. It's in records. It's in movies. Where is there not Soul Train mentioned? So it was just another thing like that. I didn't. It didn't affect me at all. Mm. Now, how did you know for you when it was time to exit? I was old. <laughs> I think that you just see kids in hip hop. Like I'll, I'll use. Uh, a few names, I'll use Terrell Ferguson to say. These kids are coming, Alfie, Alfie Lewis, um, Erica, uh, Monique, Monique Chambers, Mo Q. Those dancers' energy was so high that it was incredible the way that they danced. By that time I was 30 something and I just didn't have that type of energy to dance to hip hop music that was coming out in the 90s. That when that, um, what was it called? New Jack Swing was coming out. Mm -hmm. Dude, that was very physical. You see very few people over the age of 25 right now dancing like that and how long we had to dance on Soul Train doing that for 12 hours. That was really hard. So it was just, a, it was time to go. Everything had changed, the way you dance, what you did. My dance style is more melodic, more long, not short, you know, so that wasn't a negative. It's just things that change and evolve. And it's time for the old man to move on. Right. You graduated to your next phase. Let the young bucks handle it. I'm going to ride off in the yeah. sunset. Yeah. And it's always, you know, it's beautiful. I love change is good. You know, I, I, I love seeing them. I was fans of theirs. And that I named those people. I'm still fans of theirs because they were the last people that I really turned in to see, especially Mo Q and Alfie. I still think they're for whatever age they are now, you know, 
there's still phenomenal dancers that can get out there and make people just drop drawers, not flipping on their heads and doing all this stuff they learn on TikTok. I'm talking about just get on the floor and flat foot dance. Those two people are, are incredible dancers. Right. I definitely agree. Now, my favorite moment of Soul Train for me, it was from the 70s. It was, I believe it was Mary Wilson of the Supremes. It was when she had Don Cornelius go down the line with her. And for me, it was almost like going into Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory or seeing Paisley Park before it became open to the public and how you would rarely see Don really, you know, cut loose. Oh, I see. Um, so, you know, there Don has been in some movies, right? And some other things. So I, I was privy to see Don like play basketball on Soul Train and before that. So it, it was, I don't know, it, now looking back on it, it's historic because it's Mary Wilson and it's Don Cornelius and you never saw Don come down the line. At the time that I viewed it on television when I was a kid, it was just another thing. It didn't, it didn't seem that exciting to me because I didn't know the history of Mary Wilson like I do now. Although I knew she was one of the Supremes, but it wasn't like, oh my God, look at Don Cornelius going down the Soul Train line. It became more important to me as the older I got. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know he did a movie called Tape Heads, which I saw, which was pretty funny, a cult classic. But I always had that image of Don in my head of being all business all the time. Have your stuff on point, because if you don't, here hurt your feelings. Yeah, he was kind of serious when he was at work, but I've seen Don cry. I've seen Don laugh. I've, you know, I've seen him in different capacities over the years of, you know, 13 years of Soul Train. We did award shows outside of Soul Train, like the Brotherhood Crusade at one time gave uh, tribute to Don Cornelius. And dude, that thing should have been televised. There was Barry White was there, Patti LaBelle, Luther Vandross. We, we opened up the show. We did a, a halftime thing in the show. It was just incredible, man. And that was one, I think that was, if I had to think of Soul Train, I wish that was taped because that was one of the best things I think that Soul Train produced. And one of the last things was right before 85 and everything kind of shifted. It was just an incredible show. And I think that's when Don Cornelius really, that's when we all saw him cry because he thanked us for how great the opening and the dance numbers were. Wow. That, that like you said, that should have been televised, you know, to have that moment. And I believe Don got his flowers. And I believe yeah, Soul did. Train should be put more on a higher pedestal, a Broadway play, and just have all of the remaining dancers who are still here to be able to tell the story, tell their truth, because as we know with certain things, people have their own interpretations of how things are. And I think that their truth should be told. I agree, oh, I agree, man. Mm. Now, do you still have some of the Soul Train swag? I know you still got the Soul Train satin jacket somewhere. Bro, if I told you, I kept almost all the clothes that I wore on Soul Train, believe it or not. I just knew that what we were doing was not just temporary, at least for me. So, yeah, I could probably open up my own room for a museum of all the swag I kept. And, you know, I'm on the Soul Train cruises now. You know, I got to be the ambassador to represent Soul Train on the cruises for the last 10 years. So, man, you ought to see the swag I got from that. I mean, every time we go on a cruise, they're giving out every night some cup or 
a towel or some memorabilia. So man, I have like incredible amount of Soul Train memorabilia that hopefully one day people will get to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got to make my way on the Soul Train cruise one of these days. I'm definitely of that age range now. Save my little ducats so that uh, when the cruise goes anywhere, I can put my money down and say, hey, I'm partying on the hippest trip on the seas. <laughs> You're going to love it, man. It's so much fun. Yeah, I, I bet, man. Fun, music, activities, and you never know who's going to be on the ship. You may bump into so-and-so here. You may bump into so-and-so there. See a performance by yeah. so-and-so on the observation deck, and you're like, man, I'm in close proximity with these people, and I never thought that <laughs> I would be that, you know, being yeah. from a viewer of the show to being on a cruise ship with thousands of fans. Yeah. And it's not so much that people are going, oh, there's a person from Soul Train. It really is just a good time of people. You don't know who was on Soul Train and who wasn't. It's just a lot of us, people that love soul music that are there, just all with Soul Train in mind, having fun, man. It's just a really good time. Mm, And uh, one more thing, and I want to get you out on this. So in, in your opinion, if you can put Soul Train's legacy in three words, what would it be and why? Love, peace, and soul, because that is really the culmination of Soul Train. There was lots of love on the set and being a part of Soul Train and the production and the the, um, legacy of Soul Train. The peace of it is all that I think everyone that went there and what we got from the experience gave us all like a pride and with pride comes, hey, we felt a piece of something and it was, it's just beautiful. And the soul of it is that we're, it's, it's still here. We're here talking about it now. So we'll always be amongst the black people as something that is great in our legacy and in American, not just black history, but American history. And though, that's why I'm using those three words because they're perfect, love, peace, and soul. Right. I definitely could not agree more. So do you have any shout outs you want to give and also plug social media where fans can get a hold of you if they want to ask you questions about, hey, you still got your foxtails or your Soul Train satin jacket from 86? Well, I'm not a social media person. However, I'm Derek Fleming at, you know, either Instagram or Facebook like everybody else. I don't like fans. I was, hey, if you're a cool person, you want to hit me up? That's cool. My shout outs to all the Soul Train gang. I'm really proud of David Terrell. He's in a movie right now on um, Amazon. I can't think of the name of it right now. Sorry, Dave. Really proud of that cat. Proud of Louie doing big things. There's a lot of people that, that dance on Soul Train and doing things all over the place. I'm very proud of each and every one of you. Vivica Fox directing, Rosie directing now. So I'm, I'm so proud of so many people, man. It's just, it, it's a good thing. And um, that's my shout out. I love people. I'm glad we're all getting Corona behind us. And I'm looking for big things in the next year coming. All right. And you can catch this interview in audio or video form, whether it be Apple, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, where you stream, on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. And I'm going to end it by saying this, like Mr. Don Cornelius, who influenced me to get into this business in the first place. Well, this just about does it for us. Let's do it again next week on these same stations. And you can bet your last money that it's all going to be a stone gas, honey. I'm Jarrell Mason and always imparting, wish you love, peace, peace and soul. Thank you for coming on to Beyond the Album Cover, Uncle D.
You're welcome, man. I love you, Jarrell. God bless. Yes, sir.